0: is a pretty special day. This is Reformation Day. Yeah. And some of you are like, I know what that is. And most of you are like, I have no idea what that is. Why are people wearing red? Um, in the first service, I will say, there was a lot more red, but that's okay. So here's the thing. Today Today, we celebrate what's called uh, Reformation Day. And what it is, is this is actually Halloween, is the 500th anniversary of a day when a young guy named Martin Luther nailed what has been called his 95 theses to the door of a church in Wittenberg, Germany. Now, if you've ever read the theses, and if you haven't, we actually posted them. Megan did this really cool art installation right out there in the church lobby. Um, If you read through them, you're probably like, I don't get it, (laughs) because it's just not something we deal with anymore, but essentially what these theses were, were just issues of contention Luther had with the church of his day, issues dealing with their theology and their practice of theology. See, what happened was Luther started picking up his Bible along with a bunch of other reformers, a bunch of men and women, and they started to realize that what the Bible was saying was not matching up with reality in any ways, was not matching up with the practices and theology of the church, and Luther's like, We need to talk about this. So Luther draws up his 95 theses or issues of contention and he posts them on the door and he has no idea what he's doing at the time. He's just thinking, hey, can we have a conversation? Can we talk about this thing? But what he didn't realize is he was actually tapping into this much broader movement of God in the history of his people. A movement that was going to radically transform the church and the world along with it. And so, as you can imagine, as Lutherans... People who go to a Lutheran church who try to follow in Luther's footsteps, this day is kind of a big deal to us. And we tend to geek out about the whole thing, okay? Here's the thing if you didn't know this about Lutherans, I'm gonna tell you a little secret. We're giant dorks, okay? We're giant dorks. And there's two things that we do consistently on Reformation Day we wear red. and then we will sing, and we haven't done it yet, but we will. Don't worry, because we're dorks, and we're predictable dorks. We will sing, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, because that's what we do. Now, some of us are such big dorks that we're not willing to settle on just any old red shirt, and we go out and buy specialty-made Reformation shirts, (laughs) and so I submit myself to you as a gigantic dork, Um, but Here's the thing, Reformation Day is really something to celebrate because as I said, it, it is clearly a moment in time where God acted and moved in the history of his people and it's a big deal, but here's the thing and this is what I really wanna talk about this morning. This is, this is the sole goal this morning is I want to show you that what Luther did or more importantly, what the spirit of God did through Luther and the other reformers 500 years ago, it was nothing new. What the Spirit of God did through the Reformation and acting and moving and working among his people, that was nothing new. The Spirit's role from the beginning of creation has always been to enable and reorient God's people to experience the life he created them for. Always, from the beginning, to enable and reorient people to experience that life. Let me give you an example. In the beginning, God creates us and gives us life. And he says, this is the incredible life I intend for you to live. And humanity goes, that's nice. We're going to live this way. And then God has to come in with his spirit and continue to reorient us. Or, you know, give me another example. Um, As a church, we have been uh, working through the story this entire year. Remember, in January, we started in the book of Genesis. And we have just caught up through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what we've been doing this entire time. But through that entire process, we've seen the Spirit come in and enable life and reorient God's people a number of times. We saw the opening pages of Genesis. Remember how Genesis begins, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void and empty. It was this picture of a chaotic nightmare, if you will. But then you have the Spirit of God hovering over it, And the image you get is the Spirit of God is just waiting for God to say, let there be, so the Spirit can let there be. The Spirit is longing to just bring life into the world because that's the Spirit's role. And then if you flip over to Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 2, God forms humanity out of the dust of the earth, or another way of thinking, out of the raw elements of creation. But what gives humanity life? It's not a lightning bolt. It's not a I don't know how you would do it. I'd probably do it with a lightning bolt. That's pretty cool. Like, um, God breathes his spirit into humanity. And it's God's spirit that enables humanity to live. And so over and over again, we see God's spirit enable us to live. And here's the thing. When God's spirit enables us to live, it's not just any life. It's this life that God intended us to live, this life that goes in this way, a life of purpose, a life of meaning, a life of satisfaction, a life of joy, a life of contentment, a good life. That's what God created you for. God didn't create you for mediocrity. God created you to experience this incredible thing, but the problem with humanity is God gives us this incredible gift, and we go, thanks, but I'm going to go this way. I'm going to take a different route. Look, Sin is really just a very fancy word for us saying, God, I want to go my own way. See, God creates us to live this way. This is, this is the way God intends. And we go, that's nice. I'm going to do my thing here. That's sin. Sin is outright rebellion to God. Outright rebellion to the ways of God. It's me saying, God, I actually know better than you. I'm going to play God of my life. I'm going to determine right from wrong. I'm going to do that. And the problem with sin... And we saw this all throughout scripture, is every time we sin, we leave nothing but brokenness and pain and chaos in our wake. Every time we sin, more importantly, we get further and further and further away from the life that God intended for us. And so the spirit of God has to come in and reorient us. And we see this throughout the scriptures as well. Just think about this. God looks down at his people, sees us wandering away, hurting ourselves in pain, and so God, through the Spirit, gives the law. And the purpose of the law was good. The law wasn't given because God is seeking to manipulate us or, you know, he wants to see us do certain things because it makes him happy. No. God gave the law because he knew we needed the law. I mean, just think about some of these things. God says, I don't want you to kill each other. Okay um stop stealing from each other yeah that's another good one um stop sleeping with each other's spouses not so good for your marriage stop worshiping false gods and we talked about well how they would worship false gods in that culture was there's was two ways you would sacrifice your children or you'd have to go sleep with a temple prostitute either way not good for your marriage and definitely not so good for your children god's laws were good They were intended to reorient people to experience this full, amazing, satisfying life that he offered us. But humanity didn't like the law and continued to rebel. And so God doesn't give up on humanity but continues to send his spirit to redirect, reorient humanity but we just continue to resist. Soon enough, the spirit speaks through the prophets and it's revealed that humanity's real problem is that we've become so infected by sin that our hearts have become what the Bible describes as hearts of stone. In other words, even though the Spirit is coming to reorient and redirect us, our hearts are so hard that we can't respond. We're locked up and we're stuck in this broken chaos. We're not able to experience the life that God offers us. But the Spirit speaks through the prophets and speaks of a time through all of the prophets, where the Spirit will be poured out on all of God's people, and they'll be able to live this life. And one prophet, specifically a guy named Ezekiel, speaks of a time when we'll have a heart transplant, when God will take our hearts of stone and change them into hearts of flesh. And Ezekiel says, on that moment, when that happens, when our hearts are changed, God's going to do something even more radical. He's going to place his Spirit inside of us, No longer are we going to be stuck with some external laws or whatever it is, but God's Spirit will take up residence inside of us. And Ezekiel says the reason for that is so that the Spirit can, one, enable us to live the lives that he's allowing us to, but more importantly, to remind us of the commands of God, reorient us constantly back to the way we were intended to live. But then the Old Testament ended, and the Spirit never showed up. And humanity is stuck in this pitiful, broken place. I mean, we read it, you, you were with me. We were walking through the Old Testament and we get to the end and it's like, boom, and you're like, that's it? More importantly, my reflection at the end of it is you go, how stupid are human- is humanity? How stupid are we? God has been offering us this incredible gift and he's continued to pursue us and we continue to go, yeah, but I wanna do this instead. like. What is wrong with us? Why would we do this? And God, when are you going to act? 400 years pass. Still nothing. If anything, Israel's history, things get worse and worse. And you're still left going, when, O Lord, what are you going to do about this? And then finally, as we saw, Jesus breaks in. And when Jesus comes, Jesus came for one reason. He makes his purpose explicitly clear. He came that you and I might experience the life that God intended for us all along. Most famous Bible verse, all time, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him, whoever trusts in him, whoever follows him, will not perish, but will what? Have eternal life have everlasting life, have this quality of life that is far surpassing anything you could ever think or imagine or achieve on your own. That is why Jesus came, that you might truly live. And the way Jesus did this is several fold. But first, everything that Jesus ever taught, everything that Jesus ever did was modeling this life. I mean, think about this. You look at the way Jesus lived. This was a man that had a mission, whose life had purpose. He was totally content. He had this incredible relationship with the Lord. He had this incredible relationship with other people around him. People were excited when he walked in the room. I mean, that's a big deal. That's a life we long for. When you look at Jesus, you go and you're like, man, I wanted to be around that guy. There is something about him that is so compelling. And you're like, why can't my life look like that? Jesus came to model how to live this incredible life that God offers us. But Jesus also knew that our real problem was our heart issue. Jesus was fully aware that our hearts had become so hard that the only thing that was ever going to come is when something would crack them. Now, Jesus also knew that the consequences of sin, this is a fancy way the Bible puts it, the consequences of sin is death. Let me, that's a really fancy way of explaining why Jesus had to die, but Let's put it this way. Um, if you're a parent and you give your child a toy and your child abuses that toy, like if I, give, if I give, here you go, kiddie pool, if I give you a bat and you start hitting Brooke with the bat, your mom is probably gonna take the bat away from you, right? Now if you hit Parker, it's another, no. You can't do that, right? Like if we give a toy and you abuse the toy, you misappropriate the toy, the mom's gonna take the toy away from you. That's just what happens. Well, what we see in scripture is life is depicted as this gift that God gives. This full, amazing, abundant, incredible life. It was a gift of grace. God didn't have to give it to you. He wanted to. But humanity abused that life. Humanity said, no, God, I got a better plan. I'm going to do it this way. And so the Bible says that because of that, God desires, or not desires, God has determined because he's a good God, a just God, that he has to take that life away from you. That's the consequences of your rebellion. You abuse God's life. He'll take it from you. Well, in the Old Testament, God set up this sacrifice system, and it was a temporary means of being able to kind of appease the system. And so what was happen is you would transfer your sin, your guilt, your shame, your brokenness, your rebellion, all the brokenness of this life onto an animal. And you would take it before God and it would be sacrificed and it'd be done so in a horrific way. And the idea was you were supposed to realize how bad your sin was so that you didn't go back and do it again. It was a disgusting process, but it didn't work. Jesus knew this. And so what Jesus came to do was he said, I need to do that. Because the animal was only temporary. It wasn't able to satisfy the wrath of God forever. It wasn't a stand-in for humanity. It was a temporary little situation. But see, what Jesus did by coming and living this perfect life, Jesus never rebelled. Jesus lived the life that God intended for us. He was given the life. He used it appropriately. He never misappropriated it. Therefore, his was perfect. Jesus knew that if he gave his life in the place of us, that would be a once and for all transaction that would satisfy the wrath of God forever. And so he does. And so Jesus goes and goes to the grave intentionally, as he says, to be a ransom for the many. In going to the cross, we then, in believing in Jesus, transfer our sin, our brokenness, our shame to him, and it's done once and for all. But the power of the gospel isn't that Jesus died, It's that Jesus rose from the dead. See, if Jesus just died, he'd be taking care of our brokenness. And we go, well, that's great, but we're still stuck in our brokenness. Yeah, it's appeased for. Yeah, God's not like angry anymore about the whole thing, but we're stuck in our brokenness. But Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave. And in rising from the grave, Jesus again opens up an avenue to live a new life chart a new course, and he models that you don't have to just be stuck in your brokenness. You can experience this life. It is through the act of Jesus dying and resurrecting that our hearts are broken, that we have this heart transplant that Ezekiel talked about all along. It's powerful, but Jesus himself said to his disciples, he said to his disciples, it doesn't matter that now I've made the means available to you. You are incapable of bringing change on your own humanity. You can't do it. And so Jesus said, you've got to wait for the Spirit. You have to wait for the Spirit. And so Jesus, after he resurrects, he tells his disciples, he's with them for about 40 more days, and he says the entire time, wait on the Spirit. Wait on the Spirit. And when the Spirit comes, he's going to transform you. And this morning, church, I know you're like, when is he going to open that Bible in his hand? We're going to open it right now. I want to invite you to open up with me to Acts chapter 2, and we're going to see what happens when the Spirit comes upon God's people. And what I hope you see more than anything else is there is going to be a distinct break where these people are no going to live in their brokenness, but are now going to step into this new life that God intended for them all along. What we're going to read is called the day of Pentecost. Pentecost is um, a holiday that came 50 days after the Passover. So 50 days after the death of Jesus. Jesus, after he was resurrected, spent 40 days with his disciples. Then he went up to the Father Ten days have passed and the disciples are all gathered together and they're just waiting for the Spirit to come and now the Spirit's going to show up. This is the birth of the church, or another way of putting it, this is the formation of the church. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. When the day of Pentecost came, they, meaning all of the disciples, were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven And filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak in other languages, other tongues, as the Spirit enabled them. So get this picture. Okay, so all the disciples, they're just gathered in a house together. And we don't know what they're doing. We like to over-spiritualize it and say they were clearly praying. But let's be honest, when we get together, we don't constantly pray. They were just hanging out. Okay, maybe they were eating, maybe they were playing checkers, I I don't know what they were doing, but they're hanging out and then all of a sudden, this violent wind rushes into the room and then accompanying it are these tongues of fire, flames, little flames that are somehow burning above their heads and then these people just start declaring in different languages that they've never spoke before the glories of God. When this happens, this sound was apparently so loud that all of Jerusalem was like, what the heck was that? And they end up coming to this house and they surround it and they hear these believers inside speaking these glories of God in different languages and they're totally confused by it. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, I'm looking at verse five, God fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came and gathered in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, wait, aren't all these guys who are speaking, aren't they Galileans? How is it then that they're speaking our own native languages? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own languages amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what is going on? What does this mean? And still others, they just mocked them and were like, oh, they're just drunk. They're just drunk. What does this mean? Well, this is where it gets really exciting. Peter then comes out with the other apostles and he stands up and he goes, hey, let me explain what's going on? Brothers and sisters, what you're experiencing right now, this is what God intended from the very beginning. This is what the prophets spoke of. A day when God would pour out his spirit upon his people and enable us to experience this life he created us for from the very beginning. Receive it. And what triggered this event, he says, is the death of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus Christ, Peter says, was a man attested to us as something special. Jesus was a man who was not like anybody else. He was clearly different, and we saw it in his miracles. We saw it in his teaching. We saw it in the authority he had. We saw it, but we killed him. You killed him, Peter says. You, with the help of other wicked men, you killed him. But the grave couldn't hold him. I love this. The grave couldn't keep its grip on him. And he broke free of the grave. And in breaking free of the grave, Jesus then elevated to the right hand of the Father. And in doing so and being risen from the dead, one thing is made abundantly clear this man who you killed was our Lord and King. And more than that, he was the long awaited Messiah, the one God talked about from the beginning, and you killed him. Look at verse 37. At this, at this, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And Peter and the other, and said to the Peter and the other apostles, What do we gotta do? We get it. We screwed up. What do we do? Peter responds, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What do we got to do? Repent and be baptized. Then receive the Spirit. You want to know what Christianity is all about? I mean, the very simplest understanding of Christianity. Somebody asks you, what does it mean to be a Christian? How do you become a Christian? Whatever it is, here it is. Repent, be baptized, receive the Spirit. It's not complicated. Peter says nothing about your church attendance. Nothing about how much you're supposed to read the Bible. Nothing about how much you're supposed to tithe. Peter doesn't say anything about that. He doesn't say you need to go and help people. All of that will flow from what Peter says. That's a natural flow of those things. But what does it mean to be a Christian? Repent, be baptized, receive the Spirit. So what does that mean? What does it mean to repent? Repentance is another fancy biblical word. All it means is admit you've been going the wrong way. If God, from the beginning, gave us this incredible life to live, and we have been going over here, repentance simply means confessing that you don't have your life together, that you have been living in rebellion, that you have not been living the life that God intended for you. That's it. Admit you've been playing God of your entire life, and you need help. Another way of looking at this is, look, church, I don't think I have to really tell any of you this. Because I imagine the fact that all of you in this room admit, you know what, my life isn't perfect. I don't know how to live on my own. That's kind of why most people go to church. That's the basis of repentance. It's just this posture of saying, I don't have it all figured out. That's repentance. And then second, be baptized. To be baptized is another fancy word of just saying, put your faith in Jesus Christ. Trust him. Commit to follow him. So here's what happens in baptism. Okay, in baptism, what happens is this. When somebody's baptized, we dip them under the water, we dunk them, and then we pull them back up. Going under the water is symbolic of death. Coming back out of the water is symbolic of life. When you are baptized into someone's name, what you're doing is saying, in going under the water, I am proclaiming that just as Jesus died and was put into the tomb, put into the ground, so too am I associating with him. I am saying that I am transferring all of my brokenness, all of this corrupt ways that I've been living, I'm putting that on him. And I'm professing it it was killed with him. It's done. But when you come out of the water, just as Jesus came out of the empty tomb, we begin to declare that we weren't stuck in our sin, but that we have now been entered into this new life That God offers us. It's not a life that we achieve by our own power because you can't pull yourself up out of the water. Somebody else has to pull you out of the water. But by the power of the Holy Spirit inside of us, because of what Jesus has done, I am able to experience this new abundant life. That's what baptism is all about. And so when he says, repent, just admit you need help. Second, turn to Jesus for that help. And third, when you do so, the Spirit of God will come and enable you and reorient you so that you can fully experience the life that God intended for you. That's Christianity in a nutshell, folks. It's really not complex. It's easy. The powerful thing about this is this, is we see that after this point, 3,000 people come to faith in Jesus Christ. 3,000! And then we're given a glimpse at what the early church looks like. What were their practices? You know, we've made church so complex, but look at what the early church did. Look at Acts 2.42. Look at verse 42. This is what the early church did. Every day, they got together. They listened to the apostles' teaching. They had fellowship. They broke bread. They prayed. That's it. Nothing complex. Nothing over the top. No fancy theological structures that you had to believe and endorse and programs you had to go through. No, no. Listen to the apostles' teaching. What does that mean? Well, what do the apostles teach about? Jesus. <laughs> they were eyewitnesses of what Jesus said and Jesus did, and that's what they talked about. And so what the church would do is they would come together and they would go, hey, remember there was this time where Jesus healed this leper? And they would chew on it and they'd go, Well, what does that tell us about how Jesus engages the poor? How Jesus engages the broken? What would it look like for us to do that? That's all they did. They just looked to the life of Jesus. They listened to his teachings, and they said, well, what does that look like in my life? And then they fellowshiped. Fellowship, another fancy word. This passage is full of fancy words, but it's just a word that just means they shared life together. They shared life. And they shared everything in life. They shared the good stuff, the bad stuff, the joys, the frustrations, the accomplishments, the failures. Look, this was pure community. This is what every single one of you longs for. I know this. None of us likes to just be completely isolated on our own. We want people in our lives who know us and love us and share life with us and celebrate with us. That's what the church did. And more than that, this sharing extended beyond just emotional sharing. It says that they shared materially with everybody. There wasn't a person among them in need. Everybody had something. Everybody was taken care of. There was food and shelter to go around. They were taken care of. It's simple. And then, and then here you go, they broke bread together. What does that mean? They ate food, because let's be honest, if you're going to experience this cool, abundant, amazing life that God offers you, probably food's going to be involved, right? Nobody wants to experience a life where you're just having, I don't know, stale food. You want good food. You want food, and that's what they did, but there's also probably an element in this of when they broke bread, they were celebrating the Lord's Supper together. They would have been reminded of this meal and in reminding of this meal, they would have been reminded of the brokenness that they were once in, but what Jesus had come and done and allowed them to experience this new life. They would have broke bread together and then here you go, they prayed. That was it. They prayed for one another. That was church. It was simple. It was beautiful. It was powerful. It wasn't about having right doctrine. It wasn't even about perfect practice at the moment. It was just admitting you don't have your life together, and saying, the only person that seems to have it is Jesus, and I'm going to try and follow him. That was it, folks. And the really cool thing is, as we continue to follow the book of Acts, these people that were just looking at Jesus, and chewing on him, and meeting together, they begin to look, and live, and love like Jesus. They begin to do the things that Jesus did. They begin to experience the life that he experienced. I mean, you see this, there's this sense of contentment that exists in them, this sense of satisfaction, this sense of purpose. They go out and they're engaging the world and they're becoming infectious. They love the poor, they love the needy, they love the broken, they confront evil when it is and society begins to transform all around them. And this isn't localized because this little tiny group of people ends up spreading all over the known world, all up into Western Asia, or excuse me, Western Europe, Eastern Asia, South Africa, literally all over the place. It spreads everywhere, and people are coming to know this Jesus and experiencing this life that he offers them. It's a beautiful picture. Next week, we're going to talk about the theology of the early church, and I'll tell you, it was really quite simple. It wasn't complex, I mean, the reformers kind of solidified it in a way, and they said it was grace alone, faith alone, word alone, Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. That was it. We'll we'll unpack all that next week. But for what you need to understand is, it was really simple. And it was powerful. So the question is, how did a church that started out so simple, focused on very basic things like admitting we had a problem, and recognizing Jesus was the only answer to that problem. How did it become so complex? How did it, by the time of Luther and the other reformers, become this convoluted, messed up system of structures and weird theology? How did we get to that point? I mean, if you aren't familiar with the church in that day, the church came up with all these weird ideas like purgatory and penance and confession, and if you didn't get baptized before you die, then you're going to hell, or, you know, you had to give X amount of dollars. Or the, the worst one was, um, in Luther's day, that the church came up with this, sick and twisted idea that you had to buy a piece of paper to get out of hell but don't worry if you bought this piece of paper you could buy one not just for yourself but you could buy one for your friends for your children for your relatives your aunt your uncle especially you know your drunk uncle you could get him out of heaven or out of hell just 100 bucks here no big deal just a coin in the coffer we could save a soul and you look at this and you go wait hold on That was nothing like the original church. That was nothing what God originally talked about in the scripture. How did we get so messed up? For the sake of time, I'm not going to explain it. I'll probably do one of those Facebook videos this week to kind of explain where we get there. But what you need to understand is it started off very subtle. There were a number of subtle shifts that happened in the church's theology. And over time, as we follow those out, we end up being so messed up from what God originally intended for us. If God wanted us to go here, we're like, we're like way over there. How did this happen? Well, it was subtle and it was over time. But the Spirit of God continued to act in the world. This is what we talk about. The Spirit of God was continuing to move in the lives of Christians, men and women who were seeking to follow God, and the Spirit brought them back to the Scriptures. And the Spirit, as it brought them back to the scriptures, reoriented them to what salvation was truly about, what the gospel was really about, and people were reoriented so that they could again experience this life that God offered for them. This is why I said at the very beginning, the Reformation Day is something to celebrate. It was a distinct moment in the life of the church where God moved in human history, where we see God living and acting and affecting change and transforming his people transforming the world. It is worth celebrating, church. But the other thing that the Reformation Day makes clear to us is we have a God who is still acting in human history. Let's be honest, kids talk about this all the time and that's just because we let them say it on our behalf. We believe that when the Bible was shut, that's when God stopped working. That God stopped working 2,000 years ago, hasn't really done a whole lot since and we just look backwards on what it is that Jesus did. But that's not it at all. What the Reformation Day shows us is that we have a God who is living and acting and engaged in our lives today. We don't serve a God who's uninterested or disaffected by the stuff in your life. He's acting in it today. And I'll tell you this, I believe today as we look around in the church today, we see the Spirit continuing to enable life and reorient God's people. We see it all the time. I'm gonna give you two very brief examples and I'll wrap up with this. Two, one we'll call like a meta level like a very big picture level, and then one a personal level. On the meta level, okay, one of the great tragedies of the Reformation was the fragmentation of the church. That after the Reformation, people just started disagreeing with each other and creating new churches. It's a terrible tragedy. And it came about from the stupidest of ideas. And I mean this sincerely. It was just stupid, and I'll show you some examples of it. It was believed that what Luther was doing, and this was not what Luther was doing, was he was picking apart an issue that he disagreed, and so he said, well, I'm going to go over here and start my own new thing. That's not what happened, but people perceived it as that. And so they would come up and they go, well, I think when we baptize people, we have to dunk them under the water. And others go, I mean, yeah, sure, we can do that, but we can also sprinkle. Well, I disagree. Let's split. Another person would come in and go, I think communion is just a symbolic remembrance thing. Well, okay, that's nice too, but could it also be that Jesus is doing something through that meal? No, let's disagree, let's split. Another one is, you know what, I like my church leadership looking like this. Well, I like my church leadership looking like this. Well, let's split. Well, I like Calvin. I like Luther. Well, let's split. (laughs) I like my version of the Bible. Well, that's nice, but other versions are okay. No, King James only, you gotta have King James, and then we split. This is, it's ridiculous, And soon enough, I'm not kidding, go look it up on Wikipedia, because I had to, and there was too many to count, thousands of stupid denominations that exist out there, that all existed because we couldn't agree on things. And look, we can point fun at all the other churches. Do you know how many Lutheran denominations there are? It is the dumbest thing. The dumbest thing. You want to know the great irony of this entire thing is this. Go look at John 17. John 17. It is Jesus' last prayer before he goes to the cross. It's probably what he prayed in the garden. And he prays for his disciples. And then he prays for all of the people who will follow the disciples. He prays for the entire church. You want to know the one thing Jesus prayed about? The one thing he prayed before he went to the cross. Father, I pray that they would be one. That they would be united as I and the Father are one. I want the church to be one. And you look at the church today and go, what the heck happened? But I believe the Spirit is at work in the world. And I'll tell you, I think we see it especially in this generation. The first service has a different culture to this. And it's interesting. They're able to speak to it even more than we are. But 50, 60 years ago, if you moved from a, if you were a Lutheran in well, probably Minnesota, and you moved to California, you went to a Lutheran church. If you were a Catholic and you moved to a new city, you went to a Catholic church. You're a Presbyterian, Presbyterian, Baptist, Baptist, so on and so forth. That's not the case anymore. Many of you look different. I mean, many of you didn't grow up in the Lutheran church. It was just the one that you liked. And so you came here because you were able to get over your denominational bias. That's a great thing. More importantly, back in the day, you couldn't marry. If you were a Lutheran, you had to marry a Lutheran. If you were a Catholic, you had to marry a Catholic, a Baptist, a Baptist, so on and so forth. And yet today, I mean, how many of you married somebody that didn't share your denomination? I mean, I think that's hilarious to me. I married a Baptist. I grew up like a Lutheran. And honestly, I'm more of the ED free camp if you want the truth. And yet I work at a Lutheran church or this Lutheran church. You call the Presbyterian as your senior pastor. Like, guys, those denominational boundaries that used to divide us, we're finally saying those were not worth fighting over. They're not worth fighting over. And we're seeing the Spirit reorient the church back to what God originally intended for. it. It's beautiful. Even the Catholics recently, I mean, Pope Francis recently even declared that Martin Luther was a witness to the gospel. The hostility that the Catholic church has had towards the Protestant church forever, even that's being broken down. This is powerful. God is on the move today, church. And here's another one, personal example. There are many of you in this room, and I've heard your stories, and frankly, you need to tell your stories more often. But there are many of you in this room that can point to distinct moments in your life where you were living in this brokenness. You were living in a life that was not the fullness that God intended for you, and God came into your life and radically transformed you. You can point to that. That's a powerful example of the Spirit enabling you to live. More than that, though. Even more than that. Even if you don't have that story, I think all of us who've been walking with Christ can fully admit we've had the Spirit work in our lives and try and reorient us. How many times have you been reading through the Scripture, or you've had a conversation with a brother or sister, or you've gone to church and the sermon kind of hits something, or even a worship song, and you're just like, ooh, (laughs) yeah, that's right, I have not been doing that properly. I have not been loving well. I have not been viewing my enemies appropriately. I have not treated my neighbor as Jesus would treat them. And it's a gut check. Guys, that's the spirit at work inside of us. Not trying to condemn us, not trying to bring you know, shame upon you, but to try and reorient you back to the way God intended you to live. Church, we serve a God who is living and acting today. We serve a God who is not disinterested or unaffected by the actions going on in your life. He sees you, he knows you, he cares about you. He loves you. And I don't care what life circumstances face you, Whether it's been a divorce, whether it's been uh, some sort of health ailment, I I don't know what it is, but God sees you and he's drawing near to you because we do not serve a God that is disinterested or disaffected by you. That is powerful. But because we serve a living and acting God, can we just heed Peter's advice this morning? Let us Don't think what Peter said is a one-time occurrence, no, no. This idea of repenting and continuing to trust in Jesus, that's what Christianity is all about. Yeah, we've kind of made it fancy with theological systems, but that's really the basis of faith. Admit, I don't really know how to be God of my life, and I need your help. And look to Jesus and say, how do I live? How do I do this? What is it all about? And allow the Spirit to come in and radically transform your life. That's Christianity. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, as we look back on human history, as we look at the way your spirit has engaged people from the beginning of time, we cannot help but declare that you are good and your faithfulness and love endures for all generations. You are a great God. And Lord, we have to, as we continue to be confronted with the scripture, and confess that we, like the rest of humanity, like to live in rebellion to you. We like to think we know best. We like to think we have it all planned out, but in truth, Lord, we have no idea what we're doing and we long for your spirit to come in and transform our lives. Lord, we're so grateful for your son and the image that he came to bear and show us what it looks like to truly and fully experience that life. Father, I pray that you, through the power of your spirit, would come and transform every person in this world, in this room, so that we can go and experience that life. And Lord, that we would go out of these doors to be your messengers, your your witnesses, as you described, to the transformative power of you at work in the world. Lord, have your way with us. In Jesus' name, amen.